You're listening to Alcoholics Alive, where recovered members of Alcoholics Anonymous share their experience on how they live AA as a way of life. None of our participants get paid or speak for AA. Here are your hosts, Shank and Wayne. Shank, the 12 by 12 is really taking a pounding from the big book. It sure is. I don't I don't think it's going to make it. They may stop selling it after <laughs> <laughs> after this uh this season's over with. They may just pull it off the shelves. We all inspired me to put the buy on mine. I've always liked that thing saying 12 by 12. And yep. I wrote that in anticipation of this so we could get the buy. Yeah. So he's, we like he's that. Yeah, our guest is putting the book uh, the 12 by 12 up and he's he has scratched out end and put buy. So we, we appreciate that, Bob. Like All right. It. If you're listening, we're going to continue our, uh, uh, our journey. Now that's a word we don't use, but we're using it now. We're going to continue our journey through the ninth step promises. And, um, if you've been listening, the, the real thing to remember is that the ninth step promises are really a description of a spiritual awakening. So people will argue or kind of debate what spiritual awakening in step 12 means. This basically describes what happens to us as we take the first nine steps. So it's not a spiritual experience. It's a spiritual awakening. Well, didn't we have a guest argue <laughs> that or we got, we had some, maybe we got some feedback on email about that one time. I'll have to yeah. look into that. Yeah. Well, the step says awakening. Now, you know, they did change that. It used to say experience in the first, the first writing of the book. But anyway, we have a great guest. We're excited to, to hear his experience. Bob, how are you? Hey, doing well. Good to see you, uh, Wayne and Shank. <laughs> Appreciate y'all having me on here. Y'all are doing good work with this. And I've enjoyed following the podcast and uh, appreciate y'all digging into the steps and AA principles and all that. So. We appreciate that. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm 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 going to go by Bob F here, even though I got a cold reception for introducing myself as such a while back in my home group. Uh, but given the format we're in here, it is Bob, and um, my sobriety day is April second, nineteen ninety seven, and I'm a member of the Cleveland Twelve Step Group, which meets out in Clayton on Wednesday nights at seven o'clock. So, y'all have been out there. Um, I, I'm always the one that's most surprised that I'm still sober. You know, I, I came to, to Alcoholics Anonymous. I drank my way out of college. I had all these big aspirations that when I left Wilson, where I grew up, that I would sort of set the world on fire. I'd get to college. My life would settle down. You know, I, I'd be able to to moderate my drinking a little bit because my drinking had really gotten completely out of hand, even in high school. I mean, it was, I, was, I was an alcoholic in high school and, and was very much out of control. I loved drinking and didn't have a lot of real you know, physical, legal kind of consequences in high school. But by the time I graduated, I started drinking every day. And then when I got to college at Appalachian State, it was just wide open. It was such a a good environment for, you know, a budding alcoholic uh, to go into. And I just drank as much as I could, got into a bunch of other things. Uh, And I'll respect our, you know, singleness of purpose here as well. And that's a little bit of a different format, but went way down the rabbit hole with alcohol and other things and uh, nearly died up there. Just 
you know, alcohol had worked for me so well when I was a young man, 15 or 16 years old, maybe even 14. It made me feel good. And I just chased that and just got to the point where uh, alcohol was really destroying my life, but I was delusional to see it. I kept thinking I was getting depressed. You know, we got depression in my family. And um, anyway, it was just, I kept chasing and chasing. And I ended up in a place that I couldn't even imagine uh, that I would hear, you know, other kids in the dorm getting up and going to class and hearing their alarms go off and getting in the shower. And I'd been up all night drunk and I'm seeing the sunrise. And it's like, I couldn't even figure out how they function in that world anymore, which seems crazy that you could drink your way out of sort of reality like that. But I very much had, and I don't know why my alcoholism hit so quickly, but it did. And so I took my last drink uh, at a happy hour uh, bar at an embassy suites in Greenville, South Carolina. <laughs> um, they had free beer, you know, it's happy hour. And they had this Killian's Irish red beer is what they called it. And it was, it was kind of nice beer for the time. And I had a beard, you know, and I looked older. I was only 19 years old and um, I drank as much as I could. And I went into a blackout and I remember coming out of it. You had that sort of foggy dream, you know, later that evening, I come out of the blackout because at that point I could drink just a few beers and blackout, you know, just not remember. In other words, I don't think my behavior was crazy. My mother said we were sitting in the hotel room because we were there visiting her family saying, you're so different when you drink. And, uh, but I'd gotten a sponsor just before that and had been going to a home group, the principal's group, Wilson. And so even though I drank one more time there at that happy hour, it was just too tempting to a, to a newly sober alcoholic to not get that free beer <laughs> right. thing. I mean, I was like, oh, you know, they didn't card me because I was 19, you know. I just walked over casually. I thought, well, give me a beer. I'm going to drink. And that's what I did. But the steps were beginning to move in my life even then. And so that was my last drink. I'd had much worse experiences earlier, which I won't get into now but my life at that point was relatively stable but I couldn't just stay away from it and uh, but that was my last drink and I'm very grateful for that I didn't know that was going to be my last drink you know you, you always wonder if you'd known that I'd have stayed at that bar as long as I could but uh, that's that's life that's God whatever is moving in my life and I uh, continued on with the steps of my sponsor that summer and my life absolutely changed so hmm. you've been back to that embassy suites yes I have in fact I did I made amends to my aunt there <laughs> did you really yeah my mother grew up in greenville south carolina and we got i still have aunts and uncles there but yeah we went back sober later and i attended a meetings in that town um i did yeah and i and huh. i looked over at that bar you know that old you know those embassy suites yeah. are set up with those little le levels and stuff but yeah no more temptation but uh, as, as a newly sober alcoholic it didn't take much you know hey free you know nice beer i was like oh yeah i thought it was sophisticated you know I was drinking like a, a high shot. Sure, yeah. Anyway. We had a previous <laughs> guest on a couple episodes ago who took their last drink and was it La Quinta? Shake? Yep, the La Quinta. <laughs> La Quinta, yeah. Man, yeah. that might have been a little rougher than uh, the Embassy Suites now. No doubt. Yeah, no <laughs> doubt. Yeah. Shank, what's the topic? Our topic today, we are on episode nine. So we are, if you do not know, this is first episode you're tuning into of the season this is season four we are going through the ninth step promises so the one that we are on today is our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change which i think after every single promise that we read it's kind of like wow this is like this is amazing this is really serious did that really happen yeah yeah it makes you start thinking about it sure Bob, you got any experience with that yeah, I mean, when um, when I think about that particular line, 
Yeah, I know it's sort of it's confined within the the ninth step in the big book and the promises after it, but my life was so transformed by the time I even got there. I mean, I had had just an absolute, whether you call it a spiritual awakening or experience, uh, that I was so glad to be sober by the time I got to that, that I felt like I'd really had that sort of change, you know, in my outlook uh, as a result of just beginning the steps. And so I was free. I wasn't sober very long, just probably a couple of months when I got here, but I was as free as I could have imagined from the desire to drink and from the desire to live the way I had been living, you know, lying and cheating and, and, and worried about me that, um, but I, you know, for me, it wasn't necessarily that I didn't necessarily have that experience at step nine. It was earlier for me. And so I think, you know, for me, it was easier to move into the amends because I was so grateful for, for how I felt. And, I didn't want to drink anymore. It was hard for me to ever imagine that I wouldn't want to drink. And then by the time I get to step nine, I didn't even want to drink. And I had a real desire to stay sober. Yeah. Jerry, how long did yeah. that last for you? How long was your whole attitude and outlook upon life changed? Is that a forever promise? What? Well, it hadn't been for me. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, I mean, I think I had a, a a pretty good experience just when I first got sober and started going to meetings and taking the steps. And I mean, I had a, a, a pretty strong glimmer of hope, if you will, that my life could change and get better. Mostly that came through listening to other people's stories and their experience. Um, but I've had several times throughout sobriety one at like three to five years where it was it was very dark and i didn't see any way out had a couple of other experiences around 20 years sober that just things didn't go the way that i wanted it to go and my whole attitude kind of changed towards life and throughout the years i mean it kind of comes and goes um but, you know, as I've, I think I previously have said this before, that there's always been something deep inside, though, that I just kind of thought things were going to be okay, um, no matter what. But the the attitude and outlook on life, for me, it has, uh, it has come and gone from positive to negative to dark to light throughout the years. How about you, Shank? You, uh, you got any experience with this? Well, I mean, I do. The first time that I got to the ninth step, I was incarcerated. And so I, I know that my whole attitude and outlook upon life had changed. I don't know um, kind of when or where that happened. I do know that there were several amends that I did not want to make from prison. I didn't want to send the letter. I like tried to talk my sponsor into letting me send the letter to her and then she would send it to people because um, my attitude, which is a mental position with regard to a fact or state, my attitude was that I didn't want people to know that I was in prison. I didn't want it stamped from the prison. <laughs> and, you know, the kind of alcoholic, I guess, that I was is I was still very proud in a lot of ways. And I did for a time feel like I was not as bad as everyone else who was incarcerated. And um, anyway, 
my attitude was bad, basically, you know, and my sponsor had to say, listen, you were on the news, like everyone that you're going to be making amends to knows where you are. Um, so I don't really know why that's a concern. You know, my, my outlook, the prospect for the future, my outlook was pretty okay. I, you know, I, I really did learn how to just live each day and figure out what I could do, you know, up into the ninth step. I don't think that it has lasted for me. My outlook still today is usually, hey, everything's going to be okay. Uh, you know, no matter what happens, uh, my attitude fluctuates for sure. I can have a bad attitude in a second um, about life, about anything. So I think that that's kind of, I need people around me and I have people around me that will tell me about my bad attitude. And my attitude tends to kind of go back to like, no one is listening to me, kind of self-pity, I guess. No one is listening. I know the most about this issue. People are trying to tell me what is going on surrounding whatever it may be, NAA, not NAA. Um, and then I get a bad attitude, typically yeah. is what happens. So. Yeah. Bob, you uh, you got any specific amends that you can share with us that kind of yeah. helped you? Yeah, and I was thinking about this too with regard to attitude. Let me just sort of touch that if I may momentarily, but I was so self-centered when I was drinking in a way that it almost seemed like a psychopath. I mean, I, I was aware of other people. I was aware they had emotions, but I had such an idea that the world owed me something and that I could drink in any way. And if it harmed you, if I wrecked your car, like I wrecked my parents' car, it was just sort of like, I guess the best way to say it was like the cost of they were doing business with me. Like it's my world. Problem. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> you know, I'm your son. I'm going to drink and wreck your cars. And I felt very little remorse for it. I was just so, and I didn't know that was self-centered. You know, I didn't know. I felt like everybody owed me something that I could do what I want. And it took me years in the sobriety to realize this. I felt like the rules were fine for all of you, but that I should always get a pass somehow, you know, and I, and my drinking sort of confirmed that in some ways there were some DWIs. I got let off on one of my last car accidents in March of 97, right? Which is really what put me in AA. I should have gotten a DWI when I flipped that truck and I didn't. And uh, but but the the attitude change here was that I went from blaming others, full of self, feeling like the world owes me something. And I get to step nine and all of a sudden I've got to start taking responsibility and cleaning up stuff that I that it wasn't OK to harm people. And it wasn't that I didn't understand that I harmed people, but it just made no impact. It's like it never got through that self-centeredness. And so by the time I get here, I realized that I took people's money and I need to pay it back. I didn't deserve that. I, I, I stole their items. I wrecked my parents' cars, you know, so that huge shift for me from that delusion of self-centeredness into thinking about others was certainly a big part of this step for me from, uh, from getting there. I mean, I didn't believe I was a liar and I was absolutely a liar. And yeah. so I began to see that kind of stuff as I'm into step nine and paying my parents back and making amends to family members. So, but um, I did have a, um, an experience. This is sort of like an amend, I guess it, my sponsor called it a living amend, but I'd been app state and been drunk up there. You know, I went up there with these great motives that I'm going to go to college and, and my, I'll be able to drink, but it won't be so bad. And it was just awful. You know, I was just a terrible student. Um, I brought alcohol and drugs into the dorms and on that campus. 
you know, drove drunk up there and then just flunked out. I didn't even last one semester. You know, I wanted people to think I was like some college guy. I didn't even last one semester drinking up there. You know, I was <laughs> gone before Christmas. And uh, and by my own you know will, I went out of there. But when I had a chance to go back, so I ended up leaving there, went into a treatment center in the end of 96, continued to drink, only thinking I could do that. But I had a chance to go back to college again, basically the next year and at the fall of 97. And when I went back and was sober, you know, I joined a home group. I was responsibly sober for a few months. I think I did it the spring semester. So I was probably sober about a year. My sponsor had me go meet with the, um, I I would just call it the psychology department for lack of a better word, but I actually had to be interviewed by them before they would let me back in the next year, in other words. And And it was probably a bit of a long shot to let a guy, I was, I was 19 years old. I was wide open, you know, and, and, but they saw, I explained to them that I had been AA. I really liked being sober and I'd like the chance to go back to college. And they let me in again. I'm not sure that I was a good bet, but because they did that, my sponsor had me go meet with them again about the spring semester, which would have been 90 uh, spring of 98, I believe, and thank them for doing that. And, and he said, take it as a chance to let them know that AA has worked for you and that you've gone from a guy who couldn't last one semester. And at that point, I was finishing, you know, the first year, basically, because of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so that was a big change to look up and see something bigger than myself. You know, that it wasn't just about me and my sobriety that, you know, you're trying to 12-step your professionals and let them know that AA works because they often see a lot of failure, I think. And so that was something that I appreciate my sponsor doing. It wasn't exactly on my, my amends list. But he felt like was a living amend to thank the university, you know, for letting me, a crazy guy who was drunk there, come back and have a chance because of Alcoholics Anonymous. So that's the one I thought of. Yeah. How about you, Wayne? Well, I was thinking about, I mean, I, early on, I think my whole attitude and outlook started to change when I actually wrote the fourth step and did a fifth step. And because I was, a lot like Bob, I blamed everything on other people and it was just their problem, not mine. And I think when I did that fifth step, fourth and fifth step, I finally took responsibility for my own actions as best as I could and realized that I had done a lot of harm. But I, um, one thing that I had a pretty powerful experience. I had forgotten about this until Bob was talking. I, I had a bunch of hot checks at this local grocery store. It was IGA then. Yeah. I got you. And yeah, yeah, (laughs) IGA it's good America. Um, and I was so scared to go up there and, and talk to myself and talk to those people. And it was a small grocery store. Everybody knew everyone and they would, you know, they'd post those checks on the board. I don't know if y'all have ever seen that. And so everybody knew who was like writing hot checks and, (laughs) <laughs> I I remember walking in there and the, the, uh, the owner of the grocery store was like a neighbor of my dad and stepmother. And so I just walked in there and said, basically here I am. And, you know, I had a conversation with them and I mean, I, if you'd have asked me before I went in there, I'm like, man, they're going to just tell me how bad of a person I am. They're going to continue to, to, move forward with the charges and all that. And you know what? They were, they were so happy to actually know that I was doing better and that I was, you know, getting help 
and they were way more concerned about my well-being than they were the, the the money. Now I paid the money back. They they wanted their money, but I left there just you know again. I got these ideas in my mind about how people are and what they think of me, and you know, it's it's always bleak and it's never to to anything positive or to to my advantage. You know, it's like, and I was basically proven wrong again. So that, that was a, that was a pretty good experience when I left there and realized that, man, maybe I'm going to make it. I think for me, it was more of when I went to family members. I mean, I blamed everything on my immediate family upbringing. When I arrived to AA, you know, if you had the life I had, you would drink the way that I drink, you know, justifiable behavior really when I arrived here and when I was making amends to kind of not my immediate family, but, you know, maybe some aunts and uncles, cousins, things like that. What really helped um, change my attitude and outlook were the ones who were like, ew, you're a felon. I don't want you around my kids or, you know, whatever it may have been where it's just like, you know, I'm not that different. And also, like, I'm trying to live a better life today. You didn't even know all the sneaky stuff I was doing. You didn't. You didn't even know how horrible I was. You're like 10 hours away, you know, just because it looked right. good on the internet, on Facebook or something. And now you know the truth. Um, so that was kind of a hard pill to swallow. But, you know, I had women around me who were like, you know, all you can do is show up and send the Christmas card every year anyway. You may never get a response. It's not about, you know, you don't get to determine what the response is. You take the action and God works out the rest. And several of those people like still just ignore me to this day. They'll talk to my siblings or my parents or whomever, but it's just like, we're not talking to the degenerate, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So I think that that really helped to shape, you know, amends are not always going to go the way I think they should. And there will be people who are just never going to understand or care. Maybe they don't need to, um, Maybe they have their own experiences with AA or Al-Anon or something else that weren't good. I don't know. But all I can do is continue. um, And I don't have to, like, rage, not send them a card or put something tacky in it. You know, like, oh, are you even (laughs) going to open this? Love, Susie. Merry Christmas. Or whatever, you know. Um, (laughs) So I think that that was probably the best lesson for me or the people who were just like, oh, my God. Bless your heart, sweetie. Bless your heart, Chug. <laughs> well, and that kind of thing helps me because my ego tells me, you know, that I deserve something good or you ought to recognize how good I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. You know, my I have to be careful about that. My ego was still yeah. intrude with those kind of things. And <clears throat> I don't know that I had a real negative reaction with the men's, but sometimes when I'm not treated... <clears throat> Like I think I ought to be sometimes perhaps it's good that, you know, I'm not the center of the world. I don't know everything. I don't have all the answers because I can still slip into that kind of thinking. And so I appreciate you making that point that, uh, you know, sometimes we got to be careful. We're not looking for a pat on the back. Like, man, you're doing great. I'm so glad you're doing great. Cause you get some of that. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, it's, it's good that we are doing better, of course, but the reality is we got ourselves into that. You know, there's, you know, my parents, my family that was, you know, that I just ran through and abused, you know, they didn't deserve any of that, you know? And so I got to be careful that I'm not looking for that pat on the back. Cause I think there's part of my ego that would really like that. You know? 
I was yeah. telling Jay Wayne recently that I should probably get a gold star every time for the things that I don't say that I want to. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I was like, come on, let's start. Bring, let's bring that back. If you only knew what I could have <laughs> said, the A would have been hilarious to me and B just, man, what a zinger. I should be applauded that I didn't say that. <laughs> yep. I agree. Should all get awards <laughs> like that. <laughs> and my oh, son my works goodness. at the Carly C. Uh, Wayne. Oh, yeah. Andrew. Yeah, he's uh, yeah, in there frequently. Yeah, we like that one now. Tell him to it's check. Like, make sure that Jay Wayne doesn't owe him any amends. I, I will. I will. They, yeah. yeah. I will. I'll have <laughs> check on that. Make sure there's no old checks tacked to the wall. I bet there's an old check in the back. Like, yeah. Yeah. Jay Wayne on the check back there. That, that's <laughs> right. Uh, now, listen, if, if we got gold stars for stuff we didn't do, we'd have a lot of gold stars. <laughs> yes. Shank, let's move on to Battle of the Books. All right, Battle of the Books. Let's get ready to rumble! Round nine, step nine. We're on the ready, ninth Bob. step. And um, so far, I mean, the 12 by 12 is getting hit pretty hard this season. Um, please... If you have any rebuttals to previous episodes, email us, freedom at alcoholicsalive.com. We would love to hear them, maybe read them. Hey, maybe you can change our mind. So far, not happening. We have gotten some responses, but it's all been bashing the 12 by 12. They're mostly mostly big book uh, fans, so just keep it coming. All right, so we have a reading from the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, page 83. Three, and it says there may be some wrongs we can never fully write we don't worry about them if we can honestly say to ourselves that we would write them if we could some people cannot be seen we send them an honest letter and there may be a valid reason for postponement in some cases but we don't delay if it can be avoided we should be sensible tactful considerate and humble without being servile or scraping as god's people we stand on our feet we don't crawl before anyone <laughs> All right, and then we have the 12 by 12, page 87. Above all, we should try to be absolutely sure that we are not delaying because we are afraid. For the readiness to take the full consequences of our past acts and to take responsibility for the well-being of others at the same time is the very spirit of step nine. Well, What do y'all think? Bob? Bob looks like he's got a bunch of notes there, and he's like, he's (laughs) taking it real serious. What you got? Well, you know, I, I don't, you know, I'd like to think I can get my ego and think I got to defend the 12 and 12 somehow because it has been <laughs> taking some real shots from you two over the last few go, months. Go for it. Let's hear but, it. Um, I, I like the 12 and 12. I know you all, you've got that Don Prince sort of watering down of AA, you know, mentality about it. But what I've always thought about the 12 and 12, it's not nearly as sort of you know, specific and, and um, direct about some of the things, but it, I know you guys like words on here. It, it elucidates the steps in a way and, and elucidates the principles in a way that the big book, you know, is just much more direct in a way, which is good. But I, I like the way the 12 and 12, uh, it brings a bit more to it. You know, it was written 15 years later or so. And, uh, and I really like, I like what the 12 and 12 has to say. You're right. Some of the stuff can be a little different, um, but I like this particular reading. 
it, it almost sort of says more succinctly what the the big book paragraph said um, that we don't want to delay if we sh if we shouldn't. And there was one amend that I put off with a girlfriend that I had. There was a very abusive relationship in all ways on both sides, and and I would take responsibility for for my drinking that led to my part in that. But that one I put off for a year, and and it was the right thing to do. And that was at the suggestion of my sponsor. I didn't do. In fact, I would have never made that amend. If it had been up to me, I did not want to see her. And I'll be honest, she didn't want to see me either. I mean, it was not like, it was not one of those, I wanted to seek her out and show her how good I was doing. I was trying to stay away. And I think she was too, quite frankly. But that one, uh, you know, the advice of a sponsor can be very helpful in, in all in all amends. And that was for me to so put that off. And then I was sober. I'd been back from college that first summer. So sober a little over a year. And he said, you know, you need to call that girl. And I said, sure, I'll do it. He said, no, do it tonight. Call her tonight. Like he knew that I was hesitating. And so I set up a meeting with her you know, later that week for, for coffee at lunch. And and um, and I just say this to credit Alcoholics Anonymous and God for this, but I sat down and had coffee with her and made amends for what I had done. And and it was a bloody relationship. And she sort of sort of made, you know, amends on to the way she thought as best she could. And I remember her saying, you're so different now. And I try not to bring that up a lot because it sounds, you know, egotistical, like, oh man, somebody's telling me I'm so different. But I credit that to AA and the steps, that I was not the same person she knew even two to three years before that. Uh, but that was a result of me putting off an amend um, that was in a good way. So. Now, are you crediting that to the 12 by 12? That sounds like the big book. <laughs> I mean, sounds... it said there could be a valid huh? reason for postponement in some cases. That sounds like big book right there, Bob. It sure does. Well, it says we're not delaying because we are afraid in the 12 and 12. I'll, okay. Well, you sounded like maybe you, were you afraid a little bit? I was, but my sponsor was there. You know, that's <laughs> okay, okay. Do, wait, yeah. wait. Then that doesn't match up with what the 12 <laughs> by 12 was saying. Okay, but tell me, um, here's the part. I like this reading from the 12 by 12. What I don't understand um, truly would be, okay, for the readiness to take the full consequences of our past acts, and to take responsibility for the well-being of others at the same time. What does that mean? I have to take responsibility for the well-being of others at the same time I'm taking... I'm ready to take the full consequences? I mean, I don't know. That? Like, when I think of that in terms of the people I committed crimes against. Like, I would have really loved to... I was taking on the responsibility of their well-being. And at some point... You know, it had to be pointed out to me, like, I can't not allow my family to come see me while I'm incarcerated um, because these other people want to. Like, I can't take their well-being into my hands. I, I need to make amends. I went to prison. I paid a lot of money and restitution over several years, um, which I should have. I don't want to make it sound like I was so mad about that. But I just really could not take on the responsibility of their well-being past a certain point. I mean... You know, there were a lot of people that really wanted to be involved in my life and um, they couldn't be. And I'm sure they would have said that I was not very responsible with their well-being or their feelings at that time. Yeah, I, I actually kind of like the 12 by 12 reading because there's a couple of things on it that's good. Right? It talks about don't delay because we're afraid. I, I delayed a couple of amends because I was afraid. Um, it didn't hurt anybody other than me, but 
I, I was afraid. But I don't. I'm with you, Shank. I don't understand the one comment that we're going to take responsibility for the well-being of others. I mean, it's kind of like playing God a little bit. But I think what they teach us in the third step to not do that. The the big book reading, I think, is a good summary of the entire ninth step. Right? If you can't make a wrong fully right. The key is to be honest and to be willing. If you can't see somebody, write them a letter. If there's no reason for postponement, then don't delay. Go do it. And then it tells us to be sensible, tactful, considerate, humble. So I, I, um, I think it's a little more, a little more thorough than the, the twelve by twelve. It is. It's more. Um... I mean, the big book is, it has more explanation there. I think that the 12 by 12 is a summation of it. But I, I just, I understand how you could read the responsibility for the well-being of others as being a bit too broad, like playing God. But I, I think what they're talking about is just like, you know, big book principles, love and tolerance of others is our code, uh, hard on ourselves, but always considerate of others. I think those are the things it's getting at. It, it, it just hits me in, in a principled kind of way that, I'm cleaning up the junk of my past, and I'm trying not to redo that on people. I'm trying not to steal from people, yeah. wreck their cars, and blame others, and uh, you know all the things I did when I was drinking. And I think that's the responsibility I have is not to to continue those things. But you obviously can read it broader than that. Yeah. Uh, but I just see it as a way to to practice living amends, trying to live the principles of the steps in all my affairs. Uh, but the the big book reading is. It's certainly good. It is more specific in a way in terms of addressing how you would approach amends. Um, yeah, and I, and I certainly like that as well, too. There are valid reasons for, for postponement. I, my, my story was an example of one of those, and I'm sure we've all got some of those things. And there's sometimes when you do it like a surrogate amend where you don't you know, even address the person directly. You might, you know, volunteer, you know, in an organization that, that yeah. um, you know, that helps, you know, battered women or... You know, you give to a charity in some way rather than getting back in someone's life where you had abused them in a way. So, well, um, and that sounds like that may be a wrong we could never fully write, and we don't worry about it if we can honestly say to ourselves <laughs> that we would write them if we could. <laughs> and <laughs> right, I like this, Bob. You're really beefing up the argument for the for the big book here. I'm not against well, the big book. I mean, I, I I like the big book too. I I um. I hate to say this in front of you two, but I, I actually I'm, I have not worked the full the steps all the way through with a newcomer, but I do read the forward to the the twelve by twelve with new folks. I read that and I read the gaunt pro, um, the gaunt prospector thing out of the back of the big book. Uh, I start with AA's twelve steps are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, which if practiced as a way of life can expel the obsession to drink and enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. really like that paragraph. So the forward to yeah. the 12 by 12. And I, I'm trying to set up new folks to understand what we're doing. That we're going to go through this and sure. and uh, try to have that experience of finding a new way of life. So anyway. All right. So what do you think? What do you think, Bob? You going big book or you going 12 by 12? <laughs> I'm voting 12 by 12. Yeah! That's what I'm voting on. Oh. 12 right. by 12 needs some love around here. 
<laughs> and and I'm not. I, I love the big book. I, I hear y'all's arguments. I get it. But I'm voting twelve by twelve. Now, Jerry, before you vote, um, do you know what? Okay, what elucidate means? Bob used that word earlier. I may not know what it means. If, to bring the life, <laughs> illuminate, bring the Bob. bring the light, shine the light on. Yes, got it. to make it clear to explain it yes yeah yeah what do you think oh i'm going big book yes man yeah. I, so I thought uh, i had jerry I, uh, on that one i thought i had and, uh, damn yeah the, <laughs> well yeah, the... i'm gonna have to go big book But you made a great argument, Bob. You're the first one who just arrived on <laughs> no. this podcast to go. It was not it. a great argument. Come on, let's. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad he did it, but it it there was no depth and weight to it. Feather, y'all y'all are off on the twelve and twelve. I hope maybe if you you two stay sober the, long enough, you'll revisit the twelve and twelve. The twelve and twelve is the twelve and twelve is fine <laughs> for just general reading and and maybe even for meeting topics, but. It's not, you can't take the steps out of it. Yeah. I've known people that took the steps. Out. I've, oh, never, I do. I've not done that. I, but. Yeah, I do too. I know, I know lots of people that, that claim they have. <laughs> I've even sat down. I've even, well, this is for another episode. I've even sat down with people that I sponsor with the intent of, Hey, look, we're going to have an open mind and we're going to read this book and we're going to try to take the steps. Yeah. You can't do it. Okay. There's not enough, especially on step one. There's just nothing specific. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can theorize and do it, but there's no specific actions on some of those steps like there is in the big book. I've even got a fourth step guide from the 12 and 12 that me and a guy that I sponsor, you know him, that we wrote. Oh, interesting. Oh, yeah. I'll there's a lot it, of interesting questions in that fourth I'll step. I'll send it yeah. to you if you want to see it. It's worthless. It is. It's got a lot of really probing. <laughs> there like weird sex questions and it's almost like the NA workbook. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like oh my god. Anyway. Yeah, that four step does get sort of out of hand in the twelve and twelve. I will agree with some weird, almost Freudian kind of questions. Yeah. But I will say this: as far as the use of the twelve and twelve, I've got a guy right now. It's the most recent guy I've gotten through the steps. He's in step nine. I may read step nine out of the twelve and twelve with him. As a way to help sort of bring him through the now he's all, we've already read it in the, the big book now don't make, the big book that. has the best instructions on the ninth step of any step I'm going to use it as a chance to read it with him and, and bring him he's made a couple of amends but he's he's dragging his feet a little bit so I'm going to turn to the twelve and twelve twelve by twelve and read step nine with him in the next couple of weeks so. <laughs> listen nice Shank you know what we need to do what we we need to at at some point we need to bring Graham and Bob on. And let them debate this. That would be awesome. <laughs> that would huh? be awesome. It would be. It would be. It would be good. So I love. I love listening to Graham. He's got that Scottish yeah. accent, but he's got so much good content and with the accent. So it's like you. You listen double to him. You know. Yeah. Well, you're right there. <laughs> you're exactly right there. Right. Winning, yes. But, but he. But he's from West Virginia. He's not from Scotland. <laughs> All right, Bob. We appreciate you um, coming on and sharing your experience with us. Yeah, thank you guys. I appreciate yeah. y'all having me on. It's been been fantastic. It's, it's an honor to be asked to do it. So yeah, it's been it's been great. So if you're out there, keep keep taking those steps out of the big book, <laughs> and uh, and uh, it'll help you to be free. And keep listening for the rest of Bob's story.
and I'm honored to be here and I appreciate the introduction and my family was intact last I checked yeah, so you know you always you always check. wonder about that sometimes you know and sometimes that depends on how I approach the family too I, I come in I'm awful self-centered so I do try to try to thank my family when I can because you know a lot of us that have kids I know you guys do a pretty good job with some of that babysitting I know John's here and, and Jasmine and other guys are um, you know, a lot of spouses are at home, you know, with family members or parent, elderly parents or kids that don't get a lot of credit for that. So I have teenagers now, so you can kind of leave them at home. That has their own problems, but it's better than leaving infants at home, which is what I had at one time, you know. Uh, but my wife does a, a lot of the heavy lifting with that uh, and has, uh, you know, for a long time when I'm at Alcoholics Anonymous. And I try to, I'm much more, my, I'm much less self-centered because of the program than I used to be. And that has not come overnight, it's come gradually and slowly for me. But I do appreciate what that contribution, the very silent contribution that's probably being made by a lot of other spouses and significant others here tonight for, for those of us to be here and be at a meeting and, and be sober together. So anyway, I'm really grateful to be here and I appreciate Susie asking me. She was at our group recently and gave an excellent talk. And I was just sitting there thinking, I don't get particularly nervous before these things until right when they introduced me, but I got to, I, I got to hear my friend Dean speak at uh, Cleveland 12-step group last week, and it was so nice to visit a group and not be the speaker, you know? And I'm like, it, it doesn't work out for me to come out here on Thursday nights, really, because my home group is at Willow Springs and Fuquay, but it is nice to visit another, a good solid A group, and just enjoy another speaker, too, you know? I mean, I, I enjoy the speakers in my home group, too, but it was really nice. Dean did a thing on the, like talking about the spiritual principles behind the 12 steps and kind of how you work that in your life. It was really good. And it was just so nice to sit out there. So I'm going to try to get out of the way myself here and, and uh, share my experience. So my sobriety day is April 2nd, 1997. And my home group is the Willow Springs group, which meets, as you guys know, uh, down in downtown Fuquay there on Thursday night and Sunday night. In fact, somebody, right when I get finished, someone will be uh, stepping up to speak tonight uh, at my home group at 8 o'clock there. And then on Sunday nights we have a, um, like a step study or a, a tradition study. We have that on Sunday nights at 7. And again, a lot of you have been there, but those of you who haven't, if you're looking, you know, Thursday night probably wouldn't work, but if you're looking for something on Sunday nights, we have a beginner's meeting that meets at the same time as our regular meeting. So we, we go have a couple group members that go off with, with the newcomers or uh, with the beginners, and then we have a, a, like a step study or big book kind of literature study. So... Feel free for those of you who haven't been out there to come out and do that. Um, you know, my home group is just a big part of my identity. You know, and, and like I let some folks know that I wasn't going to be there tonight. Um, but yeah, I, I'm grateful for my introduction to Alcoholics Anonymous because I, I can be so crazy, even well into sobriety sometimes, and I can be you know, seized with fear and all kinds of weird thoughts. But to me, there's just some real comfort in the regularity of knowing when my home group meets. And sort of knowing what I'm going to do on Thursday nights, what I'm going to do on Sunday nights. And then I do, I do some other A meetings from time to time, and some service commitments and treatment centers and things like that. But I've always enjoyed having that regularity and, and getting to see the same people. In fact, I've been hungry member with a number of the folks in this, in this group that are here that started this group a number of years ago. But, it, you know, just having that regularity there is, is a big part of my sobriety. And it's so unspectacular. 
You know, you talk about consistency. You know, you don't, consistency is not great in the moment, is it? <laughs> you know, like, man, that, look at all that consistency. <laughs> all that slowly showing up at the group uh, Thursday and Sunday. Uh, but there's, I, the longer I've been sober, I mean, there's people that are certainly spectacular in the moment, but there's a lot to be said for, for real, slow, patient consistency. I think that's what a home group is about, that we, you know, I continue to come here, you know, even when I don't want to drink. I come here to try to carry the message, but I mean, it's where you sort of take your place in the home group. And again, it's not very spectacular from day to day. Like tonight it was for me. Y'all had, you know, there was music going on and y'all were cooking out there. And I really appreciate Brian and all of y'all that cooked and brought food. It was very kind of you. Um, but, but, you know, most of the time home group is just, you know, it's sort of perfunctory. You know, we come set up chairs, my chairs, the meeting and you want to try to bring a little life to that. But, but I'm very grateful for my home group and the home groups that I've had uh, over the years. So, uh, so I do want to talk about drinking here. It's important to identify as an alcoholic. It, I, I try to tell you all how spiritual I am before I talk about drinking. It's a mistake, you know. I, it, doesn't, it doesn't play well um, for alcoholics. You know, I think at some point we do need to, to get down to it. But I, I'm a guy who loved to drink. I don't know why. We seem to have a, a bit of a strain of alcoholism in our family. My brother's a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and, and took his drink much, much further than I could have ever imagined. I got a, a real front row seat to that. And you would think, and my family thought for a while that, well, you know, you're sober. You got, just go talk to your brother. Straighten him out, right? I wish it was that easy, you know. Y'all, y'all know the answer to that. He's not going to give up till he gives up, you know. And, uh, whenever that might be. Sometimes it's never, unfortunately. But he did finally give up a few years ago, and I'm real grateful for that. But... We, we just loved to drink, and for me, it came on fast and strong for me. I didn't, you know, I, I was a guy who started drinking somewhat regularly, fairly regularly at 15, and then was done drinking at 19, and I was very upset about that. You know, I had, had plans to drink way longer than that, you know, and the fact that I'm here sober 25 years later, this was not my plan, and, and thank God I didn't get my plan. I don't know what exactly my plan was. But I knew that I loved drinking, and, and I sort of I began to follow that path and didn't consciously set out to, to wreck my life and to change the direction of it. But that's exactly what happened. You know, I, I ended up uh, just enjoying, you know, my parents were a good, normal, hardworking folks. My parents are the kind of people that were principled because it's the right thing to do. You know, I, I like to, to claim that I'm a principled guy now, but it's because I'm trying to stay sober, you know? <laughs> I didn't come by it because it was the right thing to do. I mean, it is the right thing to do, to be honest, and all that hardworking, but, you know, I learned that in AA. I, I didn't come to the world like that. My parents tried to introduce me to it, but they, they were hardworking people, and they were honest people, and they did the right thing because it was the right thing to do. And, and again, they introduced me to all that, and, and they introduced me to, they tried to raise me into church, and I hated every moment of it. Um, I just, I just couldn't stand any of that. And again, not, not their fault at all, but just the way I was. But I was a really locked up, afraid kind of kid for without any reason to be afraid. No logical reason at all to be afraid. I was raised in a real loving, supportive home. And so, but my parents, uh, again, normal people, good, responsible people do drink. There's no doubt. Drinking's not, nothing wrong with drinking. I just can't do it. But my parents uh, were those folks who didn't drink at home. They'd go out and they'd have a few glasses of wine or a drink or two at, at a dinner or a party. But people would bring them over the years, you know, bottles of vodka and, and whiskey and stuff like that for the holidays. And they would just stick it in this closet, stick it in this closet. So, and there, it was also where they kept the fireworks. So as a kid, I, I go get the fireworks and I see bottles, you know, that doesn't mean anything to me for a while. 
But as I'm, you know, as I'm getting older, as a teenager, I begin to get curious about that. And I got some friends that are curious about that. And so we start sneaking into their, their, it was a huge stash of just untouched liquor bottles is what it was. And they had no idea what was there. You could have literally drank all of it, and I don't think they would have known. They just, it was not, it was just there. They didn't want to throw it away. It was the answer. So we started drinking. Uh, we'd pour out half a can of Pepsi and pour vodka or whiskey or something on top of it. And I just loved the way it made me feel. You know, it was better than normal. And that, that's certainly been a trend for me. Um, what Alcoholics Anonymous and the Steps and God have done for me is I, I like being normal today. I like right here with you guys. I don't like you know, feeling higher or lower than I should be. And that was the exact opposite when I drank. When I, when I was a teenager and started drinking those, those uh, spiked cans of soda, normal was, it, whatever it was was better than normal. It, it wasn't always this euphoric thing, but it was always better. I was more talkative. I seemed to get along better with people. I thought I was much cooler than I was. You know, just, it was just better than normal. And it's the only way I can describe it. And I didn't go into daily drinking with it. But I took that idea and that stash of, of liquor, by the way, uh, I realized that I could drink that way with my friends on the weekend. I could, you know, get in one of those bottles on a Tuesday night or Wednesday night. So I started doing that just sort of intuitively. I mean, it wasn't like anybody said, oh, you have to try drinking during the week or, you know, I didn't need to drink during the week, but I, I wanted to, you know. And so I started, you know, even in ninth and 10th grade, I'm drinking during the week by myself doing homework. And um, I just liked the way it made me feel. You know, it was just, it was better than doing homework sober. Yeah. Have a few drinks, you know. I mean, that's the way I looked at it. And, and I, had, I had the, I think the big book talks about this delusion that we have that somehow alcohol makes us more intellectual and smarter and all that. There was a little bit of that going on. But I, in the beginning, I could, I, could, I could function through what I was drinking. When I got to college, um, that was the exact opposite of that. I kept trying to find the right balance of things, and it was always overshooting the mark and could never do what I intended to do as a college student. And that, that was where my drinking ended. Was as a freshman in college, um, I drank my way out without having earned any credits at all. It was, I was a freshman, but I had no credits. I was just, you know, I was just one of those that, that couldn't do it. And so I went from innocently drinking as a 14 or 15-year-old kid. I, you were riding bikes who couldn't drive. And then as my drinking progressed through high school, I got to the point where I, by the time I land in college, I'm a daily drinker. And, and that idea that I could do homework and be intellectual, I held on to that delusion, <laughs> but it was completely false, you know. There was no evidence at that point that it was going to be helpful at all to me. Uh, in fact, we had one of these big, um, I was, we had these, they weren't entrance exams, but I got into the college there, and it, I went to Appalachian State in Boone, that was where I drank my way out of it first, and they had like these testing things, they wanted you to like measure you for an English placement or math placement and all this stuff and so again I'm laboring under that delusion that you know when I drink I'm smarter you know and and so uh, we were we had a friend of ours who lived in an off-campus apartment so he could keep alcohol in there we, we lived in the dorms as freshmen you couldn't really I mean, we, we had some in there but you had to be a lot more careful about it you know and you couldn't just drink as openly as we wanted to so we I went over to his apartment and just drinking and it I don't know how many hours in advance I thought I needed to get the right state of mind over there you know <laughs> but I'm drinking and drinking and, and I think all right I'm you know I'm ready I'm ready to get over there and so I, I set out to go and Again, I'm not very familiar with this place. I'd only been there like a week or two. I was a freshman. It was brand new. Maybe not even a week. And I, I really didn't know where a lot of stuff was when I was sober. But when I got drunk, I didn't know where anything was. I mean, I was just, I, I left the apartment 
And I had no idea. I thought I knew where I was going, right? Like, I, yeah, I didn't know exactly where that is. Well, if you get there and it's not there, you know, it's just a nightmare. So that's, so I ended up, I don't know, I, someone eventually directed me there. I think I stopped and asked for directions. And I grew up in a small town, Wilson. It's a lot bigger now than it used to be. But I went to high school, had a graduating class of 27 people, which is a very small graduating class. So you throw me at Appalachian State, you had like 12,000 students at that time, you know, and it, it was an overwhelming experience for somebody that was responsibly sober at the time, but it was really, really bad for me. But I went in there, and I, and I still I thought, oh, yeah, I finally, I was in late, show up, you know, reeking of whiskey, go in there, and, and they let me sit down with whatever it was, and it was just essay writing. I thought, oh, man, I can't wait. You know, I was just ready for them, you know, essays, you know, and there's no telling what I put on that stuff. It's probably completely legible is what it was. But in my mind, I think it's probably the best thing they've ever read, you know, and it's funny how we can be so, you know, go from normal and just a few years later, alcohol will twist us into that way of thinking. And again, it doesn't do it to everybody. My wife is uh, is a regular drinker. You know, she keeps a bottle of rum in the cabinet. She'll hit that thing from time to time. She'll have a drink. And I never even know she's drinking, which is, you know, Y'all know how we are. When I start drinking, you're going to know it. Because I want, like, you just can't stand it, you know? Like, you know, I want to tell people what I've drunk and share some with them and all that. But I think it's the difference with normal drinkers. My wife will literally drink sometimes during the week, and I have no idea she's even had a drink. I mean, I just don't even understand that kind of drinking. It just doesn't, um, that's why I can't drink, you know? So, but anyway, I, I got up there, and that was where I had take, my drinking had taken me up there. And so... Um, this is an A meeting. I'll confine my remarks to my alcoholism, but I, but I, I was interested in other things and other things that were available that made things better than normal and also to let me drink longer than normal. And so I'm sampling you know, all the things like that that I can get, too, at the same time, and, and that runs into its own problems. Uh, but, yeah, I, we, I got up there and just, just went crazy. I kept thinking if I left Wilson, where I had been drinking very heavily and had had some trouble with relationships and had some trouble in my, in my personal life up there, Oh, there it is. I can see the clock if I turn to the left there a little bit. So, but I had some trouble in my personal life, and and I was seeing a psychiatrist for some some what I thought were anger and fear issues, and they were anger and fear issues, but they were they were alcohol related. They were not, uh, you know, they weren't anything but that. They, alcohol and other things related is what they were, and I. Uh, you know, I lied to those doctors about what was going on with me, and if you took just my symptoms and didn't factor in how much I was drinking and the way that I was living, it, I, I'd look like a number of mental illnesses, you know? I mean, really, you, I mean, that, that's why when newcomers get here, they're often, like I was, very over-medicated, because if you don't understand how deep that alcoholism is and what it does to us, you know, sometimes you've got to get people a little dried out to really see what you're working with, and, and that was what happened for me. So I got very much loaded up on medication, which was fine by me. I like taking pills anyway, you know, so they gave me, I mean, antidepressants and just some Xanax in there. I knew it was Xanax and Valiumore, you know, I was like, all right, I'm sure that will help, you know, but I got to, I got this app and it was just a disaster, you know, my drinking, I left Wilson, you know, having had that experience with a psychiatrist and some trouble in high school with relationships and stuff and thinking that I could recreate my life when I got to Boone. And I swear that geographic cure as a practicing alcoholic, sounds like absolute, like the perfect solution, you know, that if you, you know, I think Broken Feather shaved his head one time, you know, I'm sure that seemed like a good solution. I never thought that was going to be a solution for me. I shaved a beard one time by accident, you know, but I, I was trimming a beard drunk and it, uh, that's a mistake too, you know, you cut it weird. But, you know, I, I got up there and 
And I thought being in Boone would be different. I, could, you know, I, could, I wouldn't drink as much. I'd meet new friends or be new places. You know, I'd buckle down and be you know, a good student and all that. And, of course, you guys know what I immediately got into when I got there. It was the same thing. I fell right in to the same crowd. You know, we talk about that language of the heart in Alcoholics Anonymous that if, you know, the one alcoholic sharing with another, we have that sense of identification with our problem, and then we have to share a common solution steps and all that. And, but, but it seemed like you could fall in with a crowd of drunks like that, too. You know, that it didn't take much, like, language of the heart, whatever that, probably not the right word for it, but, you know, you, you're hanging around at orientation with some other freshmen there, and I just seemed to gravitate toward a certain crowd, and and, and it was on, and, and so we, you know, I got, I got exactly that. So I started drinking daily again as soon as I got there. Never really stopped. I was drinking daily all that summer after high school, thinking that when I got to Boone, something was going to be magically different, right? I mean, it, but it really sounded good to me, and of course it wasn't. And so it went from there. So I had a, a very bad experience. You know, I got to the point where I'll try and sort of finish up my drinking around this if I can, but... Hey, thank you. I appreciate that. Brian's sharing his watch with me. All right. Thank you. So I got where normal things didn't even seem normal anymore. You know, um, I can remember we would be up all night drunk and sometimes two or three days in a row drunk and just, just in terrible shape and had had all these good intentions about going to class and not drinking again and all that stuff. And I start hearing people's alarms go off because you're living in a dorm and there's a bunch of people living you know, in a dorm environment, you can hear things through the walls and the hallways as people are getting up and getting ready and stuff. And I would hear their alarms going off, and I hear people getting up and, like, going to the shower and, like, getting ready. And it, this seems crazy, but there's some of you who will probably relate to it. It's like I couldn't even understand how they did that. Like, I couldn't understand how to, set an, how to go to bed, first of all, and not drink. And then to set an alarm clock and get up to the alarm clock and then get up and get dressed and take a shower. Like, like the easiest thing in the world for most people to do. I'd gotten to a point where I couldn't even understand. I wanted to do that, and I kept telling myself, you know, I won't drink tomorrow. I'll crash and sleep for, you know, 15 hours, and then I'll get up and I won't drink, and I'll, I'll be that guy, and I'll, and I'll, I'll set an alarm clock, and, and you guys know what happened. It, but I got where normal stuff just didn't even seem normal anymore to me, and, and I never set out to do that. I, I never did, and I, I suppose all of us don't set out to get, you know, where we end up going with that. So I, uh, I fled uh, the campus there. And went back home to mom and dad's house. Uh, they, they didn't know what to do with me, and I really didn't know what to do with myself. I was blaming the problems of my life on, on, on depression and mental illness and things that had been diagnosed uh, because I had lied you know, to a lot of doctors about it. And I'm blaming it on that stuff. And so my parents were initially sympathetic, but it doesn't take long for me to land back in their house for them to realize what's kind of going on. You know, I'm hiding bottles and staying up and, and acting weird and ended up wrecking their car one time and, you know, just getting in all kinds of trouble. And so I ended up in a treatment center that it was in Raleigh. It's no longer there, but I'm really, really grateful for that treatment center because it, it gave me my introduction to Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's the first place I can remember ever talking to a sober alcoholic who was sober and recovered um, and had, had a solution. Now, he was working as a professional at that time in a treatment center. But he had, he had been an aid, he was, he was an aid member as far as I know at that time. He was still a member at that time and had had the experience of the steps. And he was doing the intake with me, you know. And of course, you're lying to him about half the stuff you're drinking and all that, right? You're lying. You can't, can't just lay everything on him, you know. I mean, it, when, you, when you're an alcoholic, I mean, dishonesty is an occupational hazard. I mean, you just, if you tell normal people how much you're drinking and kind of what you're doing, they'll be, I mean, they just don't even understand. 
And so I'm, I'm giving this guy a little bit of what I'm doing, and it's certainly enough to get checked in there, and, you know. But I'm trying to temper it. I don't want to shock anybody with that stuff. Of course, he knew. He was, he was sober, I think, 12 years at that time. So I wasn't going to shock him, but I didn't know that, you know. And, but I remember he pushed his paperwork aside, and he essentially told me that he knew exactly what my life was like right at that moment, even though I had, was trying to shield it from him, you know, by how, like, acting like it wasn't really that bad, you know. And, and uh, he said, if you'll do what we're asking you to do, if you go to Alcoholics Anonymous, you can have the life that I've got there today. And even in my really foggy state, I could tell that he was happy. He was clean. He was employed. You know, I mean, he was, he was all the things that I couldn't seem to figure out anymore, you know, how to sort of conduct normal life. And so there was a little spark of hope there for me. And, and I credit him for spending the time after the intake with me, sharing a little bit of his story. Um, even though, you know, again, I think AA members can be better professionals sometimes because they have that personal experience. I know it worked for me, having him in that treatment center as a sober alcoholic and as a professional. But uh, So anyway, I'm grateful for that. And uh, I'll just share this one last uh, little anecdote about that. I don't want to give a drug talk up here or anything. But um, I did get off the drugs I've been using in that treatment center, and I had the bright idea... Uh, again, I was 19 years old when I got out of there that I would drink only, right? Which makes, so I know there's some people sitting here who have done that or maybe even are contemplating that. Um, that's why I share it, you know, that if I put that other stuff aside, I'm young, I'm, I'm not even of legal drinking age yet. I mean, really, I could, you can make a pretty good argument you shouldn't be an alcoholic at 19 years of age. You're not really supposed to be drinking all that much. But I was. And, and so I thought, well, I'll put all that stuff aside and... And then I'll drink, you know, and of course you, you guys know what happened, just like the geographic cure, what, what happened with that. And so I got a job working on a plant nursery, loading plants, just doing manual labor. When I got out of the treatment center, it was very good for me. It was just sort of a steady eight to five kind of job and was trying to go to AA meetings. They wanted me to go to AA meetings. But for me at the time, I still had the notion that I'm young, I'm different than you guys, you know, it might be fine for y'all, but you know, I'm too young. I really, I was convinced I was too young to be an alcoholic. But so I tried drinking only, and you guys know how that happened. I mean, so I ended up my my drinking just steadily increased. I it never got quite as bad as it did when I was a, then that first semester at Appalachian State. I mean, I we were I was so out of control. I mean, it was just unbelievable that I get in a lot more trouble with drinking and driving and stuff with it. But I just for whatever reason I I didn't. But my drinking never got so out of hand as it had been prior to the treatment center, so I'm, I'm grateful for that. But it, it, was, it was out of hand. It was accelerating. And I'd been drinking. Um, you know, it, this was just how we, I had a small friend group, most of, who dr- most of whom drank alcoholically, in my opinion. And if we were going to drive, we'd have a little bit of beer uh, or liquor in the car with us. You know, if you're going to drive to Greenville or drive to Raleigh, you'd have a few beers. <laughs> yeah, that's just what we just what it was. I mean, it seemed like the right thing to do. And so, I drove to Greenville from Wilson, and it's it was about forty five minutes or so, and drank there. I don't know whether I drank on the way back. I just can't remember. But I left um, a friend's house late in the evening. I think this was during the week, as best I can tell. I think it was a Friday night, in fact, because I ended up going to the speaker meeting at the principals group, which was Saturday night, the next night, and asked a man to be my sponsor. So that, that was so I, I left her house and pulled out on a country road and just drove that car off into a ditch, you know, and, and down in the ditch, cleaned this ditch out, and then it ended up spinning around and flipping upside down, pointing the opposite direction of the way I had been driving, you know. And I didn't hardly know what had happened by the time I'm, I'm laying on the, I guess, on the roof at that time, looking up at the, at the floorboard and the, 
dash and all that. I really didn't know what had happened. I wasn't wearing a seatbelt and got pulled off the steering wheel. I can remember literally being pulled off the steering wheel when it spun and hitting the passenger side door. It's one of those old trucks with a bench seat. It was not one of the nice modern trucks. It was like a 1986 Ford and it had no center console. It just had that plastic seat all the way across. So it was really easy to slide all the way across it, you know. But I, but I did and had a roll bar, thank God. You know, look, people, you know, people get in real, real bad trouble with rollover accidents, passengers and drivers. But again, I, I didn't, I didn't deserve not to get hurt. I mean, I, I had driven drunk a lot of times and not really had many consequences for that. But I, once I collected myself, I crawled out the back window, and once I realized I was okay, I thought, I've got to get out of here now, right? <laughs> like, that's your next thought is, all right, we're good. Now let's, you know, I, I could walk. It was a few miles into town, into Wilson, where I was at. Well, you know, and as, as luck or God or whatever might have it, uh, as I look out, it's dark. This is late at night. I had apparently landed right in someone's front yard, you know, and so... Before, I, again, it's a very foggy time. I was drunk, and it was just, a, the, my whole life at that time was just a whirlwind. But I, I hear, I start hearing, this is late at night, it's dark, you start hearing sirens in the distance, you know. I thought, oh man, they got me. They, you know, I, I thought they had me then, you know. And, they, and uh, I, I was not going to be able to get far enough away uh, from where I was, but, you know, because when someone wrecks in your front yard, the right thing to do is to call the police, you know. Like, <laughs> I didn't want them to, but they did, you know, and I'm, I'm grateful that they did. And so uh, I couldn't get out of there, and, and uh, yeah, I, I thought, well, this is, you know, this is going to be it. I'll go to jail tonight. And, and uh, you know, I had this whole delusion, is what I would call it, I guess, that the rules applied to everyone else but me. I'm special. I should always get a pass. The world owes me something. You guys owe me something. You know, I don't think anyone ever told me that, but I always kind of operate on that premise. And so I had gotten some passes from some criminal trouble that I didn't deserve. But at the time, I felt like I did deserve, but I absolutely did not deserve those. But um, how a patrolman responded, ambulance, fire truck, all that responded, I was totally fine, totally uninjured in the accident. Someone got a hold of my parents. You know, this is uh, early 97. Now, there were some cell phones at that time. Like, the, they weren't very good, though. You know, Broken Feather was on the cutting edge of cell phones at one time. He was supplying my sponsor with cell phones. But they weren't very good back then, as I recall. I mean, they just weren't like they are now at all. But um, someone called my parents. They came out there, and that highway patrolman let me go home with my family instead of giving me a DWI that night. Now, I didn't deserve that at all. I thought I did. I mean, when that, when that happened, I thought, well, that's right. You know, like, you just think that's right. You know, like, I, I get a pass. But, yeah. Yeah, I had this whole, you know, illusion of myself as some kind of responsible guy, you know, maybe just misunderstood, maybe made a few bad decisions and all that. That's how I sort of saw myself. But So I made the decision the next night, because even I knew that that, that was bad and that it, that it could end a lot worse. I'd get the DWIs I deserved to get or the other criminal trouble where I'd get, I would be injured in that accident or someone else would be, you know, for that matter. And so I made the decision. I've been flirting with that, the principal's group of Wilson for a while. And I'd heard people talk about sponsors and steps, and I didn't know what any of it meant, but I kept hearing people say that my life was bad, and I worked the steps, and it got better. But even through my sort of foggy brain, that much would, would sank through, and, I, and people talked about having sponsors. I really didn't know quite what that meant, but I, I had an idea that it was like a guide. And so I'd been trying it on my own there for really from January when I got out of the treatment center until um, and that would have been right late March of uh, 97. And so I, had, I said, I'm going to go to that group and ask one of those men to be my sponsor that I've been watching up there, and, and we'll see what happens. And 
again, that was, I was not a guy who made very many good decisions at that time, but that was one of the best decisions I've ever made. Because I can look back, I drank one other time after that, I drank on April 1st, 97. Um, and that was the last time I drank. And so I got, I got a sponsor the next night and he, I remember him saying, well, we'll, we'll talk about it after the meeting. I said, will you be my sponsor? I think I need a sponsor. I just had this terrible wreck and I've you know, been drinking off and on. And I think I need more help than just coming to the meetings is what I said. And he said, well, let's talk about it. So we went and drove around downtown Wilson after the speaker meeting that night. And I remember him saying things like, we're going to work the steps. We're going to read the book together. You know, the, they wrote that book to show other people how they recovered from alcoholism. None of that meant anything to me. I mean, I just, it was fine. I mean, I, he could have, but he could have suggested anything. I mean, I, I had really run out of ideas. I, I had sort of worked through the mental health system. You know, my dishonesty was not going to allow that to be of any help at all. Um, and it was way beyond any of that. I had tried, you know, the geographic cure. It didn't work very well. And I had tried different ways of moderating on my own, and none of that, that ever worked for me. And so... Um, I, I, I said I was willing to do it, you know, and, and so they, I can look back from that, that decision from what seemed like a terrible night, and probably was. I mean, imagine, you know, I'm a parent now of teenagers, and I can suspect it was a terrible night for my parents, actually much worse than it was for me, right, to, to have your son get in an accident like that and, and know that he's already in deep trouble with his, with his drinking, too. So it was a much worse night for them. But from that, some of the good came out of here. I'm 25 years later. I mean, a little more than that. As a product of Alcoholics Anonymous and, and the people that have helped me along the way is what, I, what, I de, what deserves the credit for that change. It didn't end up a lot differently than that. So, you know, we went on, and I remember him saying, we're going to work the steps. So Steve was single at that time and living in Wilson. I was unemployed and living at mom and dad's house <laughs> and uh, was working at a job, you know, moving plants and hauling plants around and stuff. And I had plenty of time to go to meetings. So I went to meeting, you know, every night of the week, certainly for that first year, because there were a lot of times it was the only relief I got from my head. So even when I quit drinking and got a sponsor and started working the steps, my head would be so full of fear sometimes. And it, I had these obsessive kind of thoughts about, you know, taking a drink or, just, just these weird kind of fearful thoughts. And I would think if I can hang on and get to that meeting that night, I'll be okay. And I would just say, you know, one day at a time or less sometimes. And for me, it was less. And it was just making, a lot of the meetings then were at 8 o'clock. And I would make it 8 o'clock and it would be fine. And a lot of times I'd get a real sense of peace after the meeting. It was just, uh, so I knew, you know, there was something good happening there. In fact, I think for me, the first time I was ever aware of a concept of a higher power was in a meeting like this, you know, like, like standing around saying the Lord's Prayer at the end. And even just sitting in like the discussion meetings of that group, there was almost a sense of a power, certainly for me, a sense of a power greater than myself in those meetings. That maybe if I could plug into it, I'd be okay, you know, and, and, and I still get that. And I think that that is true. There is a, a power here among us uh, that can help us stay sober. But I, I began to sense that as a, just a crazy, weird newcomer that if I could hang on, and, and for me, plugging into the power was coming to the meeting. And we can do it other ways. And I, and I was trying other ways. It just didn't work very well. I was trying to pray in the morning, but I was so just sort of excited and scared about wanting to drink and not wanting to drink and just being so mixed up that for me, the action was more helpful than anything. Just I would take a, I'd do a little reading of a literature in the morning and say some prayers. But for me, it was being with you guys for an hour. We just settled that craziness down. And so I went to meetings almost every night for the first four years of my sobriety, in, in large part because it was just such a, it was such a nice thing to, to calm my mind down. And it's really where I needed to be, you know. And so I'm grateful for that. We went on and worked the steps.
I was a guy who didn't think I needed to work the steps once I realized what they were, you know. I thought, I can't. This was my thought process, and I know Brooklyn Brothers heard this before, but I thought that I was too young to have any defects of character. I thought, how can you have defects of character at 19 years of age, right? Now, some of you older folks here in the audience or that group, plenty of time to develop defects of character. I didn't know what defects of character were, but I was certain I didn't have them, you know, like... Don't have that, you know? And so, well, no need to do a four-step then, of course. That's for somebody else. And I think what, I'm grateful for that process of the steps because I was so blind in my defects character, I didn't even know I had them. I had so fundamentally been dishonest in everything I did, was so afraid in everything I did, um, was so self-centered. I, I, my experience has always been more around the self-centered fear than the anger. I know some people deal with anger, and I don't say I have not been angry or don't get angry, but... Uh, resentment has not always been the sort of the primary problem for me. It's been much more fear-based for me. But I was so sort of inundated with all that, I didn't even know I had it. And so grateful that we went through and did that. I can literally remember sitting down and looking at it, you know, as, as an academic kind of exercise. My sponsor, we read the book together, and he read the, the four-step portions about writing your columns out and all that. And, and, I, and I, I had the good sense not to raise the issue with Steve that I didn't think I needed to do it because I knew he was going to make me do it. You know, like It was clear he expected me to do it, but I'm thinking, well, we'll see. There won't be anything here, you know, is what I thought. So that, that was what I did, and I can remember sitting down and beginning to write some of the resentment list, which is sort of the first thing a lot of us do, and sort of what it affected and the reasons, and then we, we look at our part in it and stuff, and the and, and list of fears... And then the relationship sex conduct stuff. And I remember having the experience after that, again, very early. I was only sober just a few months. But I remember having the experience that, that I had, that was really, those things were very much a part of me and I had been totally unaware of it. You know, and some of that dishonesty. And it's amazing how, I like how the big book, it, it says it, if you, it doesn't say it over and over again, but it says it in the third step a lot. And maybe even the fourth step, too, about that we, we were fueled by that fear, self-delusion, self-seeking. And I love that they use delusion because I don't think it was, at least for me, it's just my experience. I don't think it was a matter of denial for me and with a lot of the problems I was creating or even with my drinking or even with the defects here. I really didn't believe I had them. I was in a delusional state because anybody around me knew I had them. I mean, I would steal from you if you left something loose, it was gone. You know, if I had a chance to take it. And I, but I didn't think I was a thief. I didn't think I stole. Like I thought I was honest, you know. I mean, but but I wasn't at all. But I, but in my mind, I had. Again, I don't think it was a matter of fooling myself. I think it was in a very much sort of a delusional kind of state about that. That I I believed I was someone entirely different than what I really was. And the four step kind of helped uncover that stuff. And I'm so grateful for that because it, it began that process. Now I didn't get you know completely honest overnight. I didn't lose all that self centeredness overnight or all that fear, but it began a, a process of getting a lot better for me. I mean, I, if I look back now, the longer I'm sober, the more uh, self-centered I realize that I am and have been. I mean, I'm just deeply self-centered. And it's got, again, it's gotten a lot better, but it, it's not always been easy. It has affected my family sometimes, it affected my work sometimes. But you, you can look back, it's hard to see it from a day-to-day -day standpoint, I think, sometimes. But if I look back... My sponsor said this the other day, but the steps continue to unravel for us, which that makes sense. And it, what, what he meant by that, and it's been my experience, is they continue to sort of deepen for us. Like they continue, like you would think that if you studied something for a few years, you could become an expert in it. 
and you would have it finished or completed. But it seems like the steps as we stay on this kind of, like we're talking about consistency or sort of unspectacular day-to-day little actions, the steps continue. And I think God continue to move in our life and we get better through that process. Sometimes it's very slow though. I mean, there've been some stuff that I couldn't believe I still struggled with. I mean, deep into my sobriety. And I think I have to be careful about that. I think I've been sober too long to have this problem, you know, like, you know, like a, a lot of it is not related to like stealing or, or, you know, confronting other people or getting in fights. It's not stuff like it's overt like that, but it, it's like phobias and fears and trouble making a decision or not wanting to do something. I think, how? been sober too long you know and here i am struggling with this again and and the reality is you can you know you can have problems at, at any length of sobriety and i think that's why we need our you know we continue to have a need for sponsorship i know i do in fact i'm certain of this i i've called my sponsor more in the last month than i did as a newcomer sometimes <laughs> i had some stuff a month ago that was just killing me very much self-created by the way you know i mean life life definitely surprises us with problems sometimes, and I've had those too. There's no doubt about that. I've had some difficult times from things that, that just happen. People die in your life. You know, bad things happen in our lives sometimes. You've got to learn to walk through that sober. But but I, what I'm talking about is like self-created problems. <laughs> like my mind just going completely haywire on me and just not not operating correctly. And so I'm grateful for sponsorship. And, and again, if I look back and on any decision I've ever made that was important, it was having a sponsor. And for whatever reason, it's worked. I've had the same sponsor since I got sober. And it's really remarkable. And if you look back at where I was when I got sober, I didn't even know what a good sponsor looked like. You know, I would sit in the back. That old, some, I don't know if some, I know, I know Broken Feather was there. I don't know if anyone else was at that old principal's group of Wilson when it was around. Ryan was probably there, maybe, from time to time. But there was, a, Steve and them would sit at that front table, you know, and they would, they'd be there and, I was sitting on the, I would sneak in on the back row trying to, I wanted help, but I didn't really want help. You know, I was still scared. <laughs> so I'd sneak in there and, you know, they'd, they'd go around everybody to introduce themselves. I'd introduce myself as an alcoholic and an addict and there'd be this shuffling at the front table, you know, <laughs> murmuring and shuffling around, you know. And, but, but nobody ever threw me out, you know, but, but through that haze, like, I, so I, you know, they finally straightened me out why that didn't make sense to say that I was anything other than alcoholic in the A meeting. And it made sense to me, but nobody threw me out of that meeting. And I've always taken that lesson because you hear some hard-nosed kind of stuff like, I'd never say that in our group. We'd throw them right out of there. I'm like, well, it may not be a very welcoming group, you know. I mean, you've got to deal with those folks after the meeting or before the meeting if you're aware of it. But I was aware that those men and women at that front table had something that I didn't, you know, that as a crazy, weird newcomer, if I could get involved with them. And again, I thought I was young. I, was, I thought I was cool. Um, I thought I needed as a young sponsor who was as cool as I was, you know, and did like had the same interest, you know, listen to Grateful Dead music, went to concerts, all this kind of stuff, this list of things that I thought my sponsor needed to have. And through that process of sitting in that group and just watching people that were happy about being sober, I picked a guy the total opposite of that. In fact, he's exactly my parents' age, which was not what I was looking for in a sponsor. I didn't think so, at least. But, but it's funny how I think God leads us and God puts people in our lives, I think, when we need them. And I think we get put in people's lives when other people need us sometimes. I think I've, I don't think I'm anything special, but I think I've literally walked into some people's lives in a moment they need, or made a few phone calls sometimes, it completely inadvertently. And I don't credit that to myself, but when people needed it, and I've absolutely received phone calls and had people walk into my life when I needed it. 
but, uh, but Steve got put into my life, and, and I can look back from that decision, you know, how things changed from there. And so I had a chance to go back to college. Um, I stayed, went, all, went through all four years, and earned all the credits I was supposed to, you know, that I had not earned the first time. And uh, I had some, some members of the first group said that, um, you know, it was weird for me to go back. They wanted me to live in the dorms again because I had no, I was literally a freshman again. I hadn't earned any credits to be a, a sophomore, so I had to live on campus again for that first year. And, and for me, it was really scary because I blamed that dorm that I lived on. That was another thing I blamed for my problems. Well, if you lived in there, you'd be living like that too. Everybody drank, everybody's doing this stuff. And, and so I'm just, you know, I'm just keeping up the sort of, you know, the way I was putting it. And so, but it was weird to go back there, but I went back and had just a completely different experience living in, uh, in that dorm and, and going to college for that matter. It's funny how our perception changes when we get sober. Well, it looked like a place that was full of alcohol and full of parties and was a totally different place. Now, that was what I found the first time I went, but when I went back the second time, it was a totally different place. Um, and just a great place. And so I joined the, the Blown Rock Promises group. I looked around. Uh, Boone and Blown Rock were a very loose kind of area, a lot of problem-solving meetings there. Almost every meeting you went to, even big book study meetings, they opened with, does anybody want to talk about a problem first? And then they would, and if no one said anything, they'd go study the big book. It just baffled me. And I, you know, I've been sober like four months, so I get to Boone, I think I know something, right? Like, and, and I will say this, I knew better than to chair a meeting that way, but I, didn't, I may not have known much else as a guy who's sober with four months going up there. But anyway, there were a lot of those kind of groups. And, but but if, I, if I say, it would not be the kind of group I'd want to choose today or that I'd want to start or be a part of today. But the reality is I got sober in those groups. I was only sober. You know, I acted like I was sober. I come out of the principal's group thinking I know something about AA. And I, perhaps I did a little bit, right? But... But I got sober in those groups, you know, and most times people didn't bring up a problem, thank God. Sometimes they did, but most of the time I'm sitting there thinking, oh, let's hope, you know, there's that moment where you're just waiting for somebody to jump in with something. <laughs> and if they didn't, we'd read the step six and have a great meeting. But just in that area, at least at that time, I don't know how it is now, but it was in, that entire area was inundated with problem-solving meetings, even in regular meetings. Uh, there were not just discussion meetings, in other words. But I, but I got sober up there, and then some of the folks... Um, I'll try and wind up. We're getting sort of close to the hour here. But um, some of the early you know, the folks said if you go up there with the idea that you're going to stay sober, I suspect you'll have a chance to get an education, which really seems like the opposite of what you might tell someone who had flunked out of college the first time and had blown that opportunity. That, you, know, you need to go up there and buckle down and take double the classes and work extra hard, right? And the advice I got from Alcoholics Anonymous was if you go up there and keep your sobriety first and stay sober, I bet you'll have a chance to get an education. And that's exactly right. I mean, I, I love when, when I drink, all bets are off. Yeah, I'm like you guys. I mean, I, my best of intentions are gone when I drink. And I, and I fundamentally knew that as a, as a newcomer with just a few months of sobriety. And I know that tonight. And so it made complete sense to me that if I would go up there, get a home group, go to meetings, get to know the AA folks up there, that I'd probably be okay. And I was. Um, and, and, and I, I had a great experience with those groups, even though they might have been a little goofy for most of us today. I still have good friends that I, that I met in those groups. I still sponsor some people that I met in those groups. They got, you know, we, we, we trash talk some of those problem solved meetings today. The reality is, me and Tate got sober right in the middle of all that. Some of you know Tate, who lives in Charlotte, but we got sober in the middle of all that. But anyway, I'm just so grateful for that. I met my wife there. Um, she was. Um, you know, she was a regular person, you know, a regular woman going to college and, 
And I had been sober two years, and I would have never met her if I hadn't been sober. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I was not living a lifestyle that she would have been interested in or would have even crossed paths with me. I can assure you of that. I met her in a coffee shop. You know, A, you know, a we know all about a coffee shop. You know, that's, that's sort of where we go when we get sober, it seems like. We love coffee, and, and, I, and I certainly love coffee, but I met her there, and so she was, she was there. And we graduated, and we moved down here, and I joined uh, the Willow Springs group. I've been a member there just a little over 20 years now. But I knew a lot of you from that group because my sponsor, you know, in the beginning, they would just put me in the car, and we would sometimes drive over to Willow Springs. And from Wilson to Willow Springs, it felt like it drove me to the end of the earth, you know, because <laughs> at that time, if you took Highway 42 from Wilson to Fuquay, there was nothing out there. It's so, it's so built up now, like through Clayton and all that. But in, in the late 90s, there was very little there. So it just felt like we'd go to the end of the earth, but then there'd be this great A meeting out there. And we'd have a speaker meeting, and we'd drive back. It seemed like the middle of the night and get back to Wilson, you know. But, but I'm grateful for those experiences. You know, show me you could have a little bit of fun in sobriety. Um, the, the people that, who normally would not mix. You know, again, I was going to meetings with people 20 or 30 years my senior sometimes. Um, and it didn't matter a bit to me, you know, it, it didn't, I thought it would, you know, I thought I'd need to find a young, cool crowd to hang with, but I wouldn't, you know, you, there's probably some young, cool, a good, responsibly sober crowds around in Raleigh. I know Wilmington's got a big young people's thing, but in Wilson where I was, there was not, I mean, it, but it never mattered to me. They were, that language of the heart what meant something to me that they offered a way not to, you know, and not to drink, but, but to be happy about it. I mean, I, I really never thought I would get to the point where, I, there would be a reason I'd be happy not to drink. I mean, that's really what was baffling to me. I, I thought maybe I'd find a way to sort of begrudgingly kind of not drink if that was going to be the way it was. But I, I've absolutely been introduced to a way of life that has been as far exceeded what I would have done. I think all of us could say this if you've been sober for any length of time, that you know, if any of us had plotted out what we thought, man, if I could just get a couple of these things and or just feel this way, I would, that'd be it. I'd, I'd call and say, that's as good as it ever has to be for me. And if you hang around AA for a while, and this is because of God and Alcoholics Anonymous, not because of me or any one of us, but, you know, we have a chance to do all kinds of stuff, you know, and, and to live through all kinds of stuff, too, and, and to, to weather that storm, you know. Um, I lost both my parents real suddenly within about six months of each other um, a, a year or so ago, and very, very difficult time for me, you know. We don't really preach the gospel of prosperity here. I mean, that's not what Alcoholics Anonymous is, but it sort of sounds like that sometimes, and... But, but life visits all of us sometimes, and I'm grateful for my own group, and, and um, you know, there were times the last year I would literally just show up like a burnt husk is what I felt like, I, but I would just take that action. And that's one reason I'm, I'm, I've been bugging my sponsor a lot more the last year, and I'm grateful for that, that I've had that. And I'm a guy who likes regular action. You know, I, I think I've called that guy every week for the last 25 years, you know, and He's never really minded. There are a few times I think he minded, you know, but for the most part, he's, he's been good. And I try to remember that, you know, because you get those calls sometimes and they're not always at the right moment for us. But I try to be available to other people because that's really what our job is today is to carry the message and uh, to get that. Again, that was one of those things that was really late blooming for me. You know, you hear people talk about, you know, if you're still coming to meetings for yourself, you know, that you've missed the point. Well, I did that for a number of years. I needed a meeting for a while. But I never, I never didn't try to carry the message as well, too. But, but that has well moved in my sobriety that if I just get myself out of the way, I made a talk in, in March at a place, and it was, it was a big thing, and, and I was just so nervous I could not get out of my own way. And it seemed like if I can just get my self-centeredness and my ego and my pride out of the way, I'm, I'm so much better. 
And, and the meaning is so much better too, I think. Uh, but sometimes we get stuck in it. You know, I, and I gave a talk a month ago and I, I even thought, I said, look, I know that probably wasn't very good. And they're, oh no, it's fine. Look, I, I know that I, I just couldn't get past myself sometimes. And so I think for me, the idea is to get out of myself and carry the message. And when I'm in that stream of goodness and, and you're trying to just live by spiritual principles and not worry about what I look like or what I sound like or, or any of that stuff, I mean, that's where the real solution is for me. It's sort of in, in giving ourselves of that. So anyway, it's been awesome. I do appreciate the food. It's great to see a lot of friends that are members of this group and certainly appreciate you guys listening and Susie asking me. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you have a comment, suggestion, or just need help, you can email Shank and Wayne at freedom at alcoholicsalive.com. Remember, we're recovered members of Alcoholics Anonymous, but we do not speak for Alcoholics Anonymous, nor do we get paid. Join us next week for another great episode. Thank you.